0: This weekend, I want to talk to you about hell. Whoa, Pastor Jeff, why would we talk about that right now?
1: Hi and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. The next message in our Heaven series is actually about hell. In making sense of God and His created world, particularly during a global pandemic and the changing of life as we know it, Pastor Jeff encourages us to find peace by listening to Jesus, who spoke about both heaven and hell.
0: This pandemic has caused us to understand the fragility of our world and of our life. And we are asking the deeper, more penetrating questions of life.
1: This is Today with Jeff Vines you know, there are some events that happen
0: in our lives that make its mark on us. Uh, every trip around the sun, every year, brings new life experiences that uh, cause us to either be sad, be glad, or oftentimes just to go into a serious time of introspection, ask the deeper questions of life. And those events, those ones that... Uh, uh, catalyze a deeper thought, deeper, deeper feeling about our lives, about eternity, about the things that really matter, stay with us to the degree that we continue to think about them throughout the course of our lives. I've got a couple of those experiences, but one, uh, when I was in high school playing basketball, the, the starting five, we were very close to each other. Uh, we did everything together. Uh, we knew in order to win, we had to become a galvanized unit, So we ate together, we practiced together, we went to the gym together to work out on weights together, we went to the track together. And over the course of time, you become like a small family. You get to know each other, the ins and outs, personalities, temperaments, everything. And on my high school starting five basketball team, we had one player in particular. I guess the best way to describe him was he was completely self-absorbed. He had the most difficult time staying in the unit staying unified with the rest of us. He had a great envy and jealousy for the better player on the team. You could see that it came out in his personality and his actions and reactions. There are other things about him though that were quite interesting. He, uh, his envy and his jealousy uh, caused him to become angry. He would lash out at us from time to time. Because I had just become a Christian, at least I had began to take my faith seriously I tried it my best to talk to him about spiritual things. I, I tried to talk to him about a God who would ease the tension that he felt that would give him the significance that he was looking for without having to get it or obtain it in other ways. But my friend who will remain nameless had very, I guess I was gonna say small or little interest, but the reality is no interest in godly things. He often mocked my attempt to go to church. He thought, what a waste of time. You could be doing so many other things. You could be partying or you could be at the lake or you could be with girls. Why would you waste your time going to a place called church? And why would you seek things that are things that you could never fully understand? He's talking about the metaphysical world. To him, everything was material matter, everything. So there was no use spending time thinking about eternal things. About a year after graduation, all of us had gone to our respective schools on a basketball scholarship, so we had left town. But from time to time in the summer, we would reunite just to talk about the good old days. And then I got a phone call one day from one of the other players, and he said, Jeff, you're not going to believe this, but the name of this person passed away last night. He had gotten drunk and he had run his car into the side of a church building. I thought ironic and was killed instantly along with the girl that he had taken out on a date. I went to the funeral. All of my friends were there, the basketball players, the families, all of those who had known the person I had become, not that I was any better than anybody else, but they, they knew that I'd begun to take Jesus very seriously in my life and that I was studying now to be a pastor. As I went through the line, and in East Tennessee, when you go to a funeral, everyone goes to the line to greet the parents, the immediate family. And as I passed by the casket there, in open casket, there was my friend, life ending at the age of 20. And I noticed his sister, who was quite a bit older, kept watching me in the line, waiting till I got to the front, which terrified me a little bit. I didn't know why she wanted to talk to me, but as soon as I got there... She started weeping and she asked me this question. She said, Jeff, tell me where he is now. Where is he now? Can you please tell me? Of course, I'm 20 years old. I don't know how to answer that. But that has stayed in my mind for a long time because it's the ultimate question, isn't it? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said that I've learned to define life backwards, first determine the goal and then live life accordingly. Well, what is the goal? And C.S. Lewis told us that we had to be very careful in answering this question because we would be heavily influenced by culture rather than objective truth. I thought about that. Where is my friend? Where are so many who have gone by? And to illustrate the danger that we have in our culture, my daughter, as I've mentioned many times before, is living in a place called Astana, Kazakhstan. The average temperature there is somewhere around zero degrees, okay? It's very cold. But they've created this kind of utopia in this huge mall. You make your way up to the fifth story, and on the very top of this mall, they've created the beach, indoor, sand, waves, UVA rays from which you can actually get a suntan. They've created their own reality to escape reality. You can escape the reality of the cold by stepping into a dream world, a preferred reality. And that's where we find ourselves today in a postmodern world. With our advancement in technology and knowledge of the universe, we've become quite confident that we can alter environments. We can shape reality to suit ourselves. And with that increased ability to control our physical environment, we now think we can also reshape the metaphysical realm. We're very confident in theory, since we can control the physical environment, we can also now control the metaphysical environment. That is that we can create a God to be the God we want him to be, and we can create spiritual realities to be the way we think they should be, not the way they are. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God says, ultimate reality is seen not so much as a supernatural order, but as a natural order, and that is malleable, changeable, We can enact change by force, not only on the physical world, but the spiritual world. Instead of trying to shape our desires in the postmodern world to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit what it is that we really want, our desires. And that's what we've done. The only problem, when you shape the spiritual reality and conform it to your own will, you know that you really can't put any degree of certainty into it. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, are you you gonna talk about heaven again and how we have an objective authority and objective source? No, this weekend I wanna talk to you about hell. Whoa, Pastor Jeff, why would we talk about that right now? And of course the answer is the same reason we would talk about heaven right now. This is the time when attentive ears are listening. This pandemic has caused us to understand the fragility of our world and of our life. And we are asking the deeper, more penetrating questions of life. We're listening like we've never listened before. Besides that, it would be irresponsible for Christ's followers to talk about heaven without any mention of hell because Jesus emphasized both. And we want to follow his lead. Now listen, before you turn off or before you say, I don't want to hear this in this difficult season, if you'll just follow me, I think that as we listen to the words of Jesus, a few things can happen. Number one, we can actually gain a peace concerning all this. And two, we can begin to see the logic of it all, how it actually makes sense in this created world in which you and I live. The mention of the word hell to most people, you get two responses. One, jokes, which there are some pretty good ones. Uh, One of my favorite is three guys find themselves in hell and they're told by Satan himself that they each receive one phone call. The first guy calls his priest and is informed that it's $250 per minute. The second guy calls his best friend. It's $300 per minute. The third guy calls his mother-in-law and he's told by Satan that there's no charge. When the other two complain, he said, wait a minute, there's no charge for local calls. Now, you may not think that's funny. I think it's hilarious because I love mother-in-law jokes. But if you don't respond with humor... You respond with outrage. People will say, don't talk about hell. My God would never be like that. The God I've created in my mind and my spiritual reality would never have a place called hell. That's why it's important to answer the question, what is hell? What exactly did Jesus mean by the word hell? So take a deep breath just for a moment and let's answer some pretty important questions. To understand it, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Ahaz is a very wicked king in Israel, and we're told in 2 Chronicles that he burned sacrifices to Baal in the valley of Ben-Hanom and sacrificed his sons in the fire. Another king after him comes along, Josiah, and in 2 Kings 23, we're told that Josiah desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hanom, so no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire of Molech. So Molech and Bel were both ancient gods that received human sacrifices. Now you think about for a moment what we're talking about here. The valley of ben Hinnom was an awful detestable place. Little children were sacrificed to pagan gods on a molten altar. So King Josiah comes along and he removes it from ever becoming a place of worship again. He converts it to a garbage dump located in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. And it's known even to this day as a foul place of destruction where there is waste, where there is contained no thing of value or purpose. In fact, unclaimed bodies of criminals are buried there and the smoke is said to rise forever and ever. Now the Hebrew term for this place that I've just described is Gehenom but the Greek term is the word Gehenna. That's the word our Bible translates hell. So Jesus looks around when he wants to give a description of what eternity would be like apart from God, and he uses Gehenna, this waste, this dump area outside of Jerusalem. And so in Matthew chapter 10, he says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now the clue to this verse is that the word for kill is not the word for annihilate. It is not a word that means to go out of existence. It is the word Greek word apolumi, which means ruin and disintegration, where there is no good use, where there is no meaning, no purpose, where all is ultimately waste. So Jesus, when describing what eternity would be like without God, uses the word Gehenna, translated hell, that refers to this garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. He says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, that there will be those who will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the imagery is that if you're inside the wall of Jerusalem, you are with the people of God under the protection of God. If you're outside the walls of Jerusalem, the city of God, that you are separated, that you are isolated from the people of God and from the presence of God.
1: This is Today with Jeff Vines. We're listening to What About Hell? Jesus spoke about both heaven and hell. And as His followers, we need to take the existence of both seriously. Let's continue now in Luke chapter 16.
0: Now, Jesus gives what is known as progressive revelation to explain to us what hell is really like. And finally, we come to Luke 16, which is a primary text where Jesus tells a story. Now, listen, it is in that story, if you will stay with me, that we discover what hell really is and the logic of it. And why actually it can begin to make sense in a world where God has created and sustains all things. So we're told in verse 19 of Luke 16, that there's a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple is the outer garment, represents royalty. Fine linen is the undergarment. So he wore expensive Calvin Klein underwear. This is a very wealthy man, dresses in luxury. And we're told that he fared sumptuously every day. The Greek phrase means, that the primary concern this man had every day as he left his home was to get his need met and to get more and more and more. He fared sumptuously every day. Verse 20 says, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. So he's so helpless that he's so dependent on something else outside of himself that his friends have to pick him up and lay him at the gate of the rich man in order that he may beg for what the scripture calls the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. These crumbs, by the way, in the first century you did not eat with a knife and fork and spoon, Uh, you would eat and then you would cleanse your hands of the grease and the grime with a lesser grain of bread called barley bread. And as you cleaned your hands with this type of bread, you would throw it under the table and it would be collected as garbage. This is the bread that the poor man is waiting on to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the Bible says, the dogs came and licked his sores. So he's so helpless that he can't defend himself against the scavenger dogs that make their way up and down the streets of Jerusalem. But it is that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments and Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now notice what Jesus does. Now let's stand back. We, we have to get this. Stand back and look at the bigger picture. <sighs> What Jesus is doing is comparing and contrasting two lives. They are on different trajectories. One man is self-absorbed and his self-absorption leads to apathy of those who are suffering. He fares sumptuously and he does not even acknowledge the poor man probably as he rolls out of his palatial gate of his palatial home each day to get his own need met. And two, Jesus tells us about a second man of humble means, who is totally dependent on something outside of himself, that he had to be picked up and laid at the gate, that the dogs came and licked his running swords. Then as the story develops, Jesus explains how eternity, this is the whole point of the parable, that eternity, in eternity, the trajectory of your life here on earth continues into your life that is to come. Notice something else just quickly if you're reading the text with me. The rich man's attitude when he gets into eternity does not change. The trajectory does not alter. In fact, in verse 24, he thinks Lazarus is still lesser than him and is his servant. He looks to father Abraham in verse 24 and says, send Lazarus, have Lazarus go get me some water that I might put it on the end of my tongue that I might be relieved in this torment. Notice in the parable Jesus tells, the rich man never asked to leave. You'd think the first request would be, get me out of here and get me out of here now. I don't want to be here. I want to be where Father Abraham is. I want to be where God is, but that's not his request. It's not God or Father Abraham that he wants. He wants relief. His trajectory is still self-centered, bent on self to get his own needs met. The sadness that he experiences in the parable is on the absence of good things, not on the absence of God himself. And the trajectory of his life that he's always lived out on earth continues in eternity. Alternatively, the poor man is said to be in Abraham's bosom. Now, don't be afraid of that. It's, a, it's just a Greek term. It's a, it's a phrase that means close to God. I mean, Abraham is close to God. He was called a friend of God. So if you're leaning in Abraham's chest, you are very close to the father. And so we're told the poor man is in Abraham's bosom, a representation of humility, of closeness, of dependence on God's provision. So the trajectory of his life while on earth was a dependence on God, full dependence on God while the rich man's dependence was on himself. The rich man's request and response to hell communicate something very important to Jesus' listeners and they would have gotten it immediately. Number one, The story is not about a rich man and a poor man. In other words, if you're rich, you go to hell. If you're poor, you go to heaven. That's not what this is about. You'll miss the signs and symbols if that's what you believe. This parable, as you look at a a 40,000 foot view is about ultimate pursuits. What did you chase after when you were here? And whatever you chase after here in eternity, that trajectory of your life will continue on that path. You know, in this time of uh, of coronavirus, I've been able to catch up on some reading and watch a few movies that I've wanted to watch for a long time. And I've been watching some movies based on the life of Stalin. And I'll never forget a story that my friend Ravi Zacharias told me about Stalin's last moments. His daughter was with Stalin, not Ravi's daughter, but Stalin's daughter was by his bedside. And Stalin, just before he took his last breath, if you know anything about Stalin, horrific, atrocious, he would actually make a list every night of people that he wanted to kill the next day, that he would send his men out to destroy them. No reason at all, just because he didn't like them. Sent millions to the gulag, to suffering, to camps that were just as bad as the concentration camps in some cases. Just before he breathed his last breath, Stalin raised up in his bed, shook his fist toward the heavens and said, God, you still will not have me laid back down and died. This is the point. The trajectory of your life is that you're going to live your own life and no one else is going to interfere. You are an island to yourself. You are the captain of your life. You have determined the goal and it's faring sumptuously. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 8, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This weeping and gnashing of teeth is not the teeth of regret. It's not you saying, oh, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have done the right thing. No, it's the teeth and gnashing of anger. I still don't want God. You will not have me, God. You'll never have me. All of this imagery signifies two very important messages. The soul is eternal. How how do you destroy non-material? The soul is going to live. It is going to continue its trajectory into eternity. The way you live now, the pursuits, the loves, the sinfulness of your life continues right on into eternity. When modern people think about hell, they think of it as if God in some kind of a Vincent Price voice, really deep and dark, Put you in a place called hell and says to you, now I'm gonna put you down there with the devil and his angels and you're gonna get it. Where hell is a place where God says, ah, you deserve it, I'm gonna get you. It's time for an eternal smackdown. (laughs) But that's not the hell Jesus talked about. Even though we've been influenced by things like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, even though it is metaphorical, Dante's Inferno. But the message Jesus gives us Relates three primary ideas. Number one, that you are outside the presence of God. My daughter Sion again lives in Kazakhstan, and although we do get the FaceTime one another, it's still not the same. It alleviates some of the isolation, some of the pain of loss and separation, but we would much rather be in proximity. There's something missing. There's something special about the love and closeness of your kids, intimacy with your daughter, with your son. FaceTime can only do so much. I'm sure that my daughter misses us as we miss her. She longs to be with us again. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. That hell is a place, even though he uses the metaphor of Gehenna, the place outside of Jerusalem, it is a place where we are outside the presence of God completely. In verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The focus is on where you are and where God is and the suffering that that kind of isolation and separation causes. That is the point of the parable. Where there is no God, there can be no good thing. Hell is the absence of the presence and the influence of God himself. Somebody might say, "Great." You mean I get to live in a realm apart from God? Great, pass the beer, we'll have a great party. No more conviction, no more moral law. Ah, but that's the point. That's the way you've lived all your life, and the trajectory only continues into eternity. But the one thing you forgot was that where there is no God, there can be no good thing. God is the source of life itself. There won't be any beer in hell. God is the source of every ingredient that makes up beer. I didn't say beer, but every ingredient that makes it up. All good things are gone. Joy, love, wisdom. They're all inextricably tied to the presence of God.
1: That's all we have time for today, but we will continue What About Hell next time when we'll finish up this mini series about heaven. Join us then for more from Pastor Jeff. Remove our planet
0: from the source of the sun, we die. Remove our souls from the ultimate source of life and existence, darkness falls and disintegration and ruin begins.